welcome back to the Lord's Side Podcast. It's good to be with you again. So today's episode is a fascinating conversation that I had with a brain-computer interface company called OpenBCI. So for a bit of an intro to brain-computer interfaces, I actually did a previous episode, I believe it's episode number two. So you can go back and listen if you want a little bit more context, but essentially a brain-computer interface is any device that reads or writes information to or from the brain. Um, So there's a lot of companies who are working on this at the moment, and I believe that OpenBCI are doing some really fascinating and important work in this field. And... Some of the stuff that we talk about is pretty mind-blowing, um, pretty next-level sci-fi type stuff. Some of it's a little scary. Some of it's really inspiring. Um, so I'm curious to see what you think. But I spoke to Eva Esteban and Leo Zeng, who are engineers working at OpenBCI. And a good portion of the conversation was focused on their new product that they have in beta at the moment, which is called Galia, which is a device that combines multiple technologies, including brainwave technology, eye tracking, muscle tracking, and virtual reality uh, in order to create a very comprehensive physiological profile of its users. So a lot of applications for this in the medical field as well as other areas such as immersive entertainment and gaming. So this was a really, really awesome conversation, um, and I really hope you enjoy. So here are Eva and Leo from OpenBCI. Thank you guys very much for coming on the podcast. Um, So just by way of introduction, um, maybe we'll start with you, Eva. Um, so I found you initially on LinkedIn, uh, quite randomly. I was scrolling my newsfeed and, uh, I came across this video of you interacting with the Star Wars, uh, force trainer, VCI, uh, I guess you could call it a toy. <laughs> um, do you, want, do you want to talk a little bit about that project and how that sort of led to where you are now? Yeah, thank you for having us in this podcast, Luke. I'm excited to talk a little bit about our background and BCIs more in depth. And yes, I remember when you reached out to me on LinkedIn, and that project was actually the first project that I ever did in BCIs. So I was doing my master's in electrical and computer engineering at Cornell Tech here in New York. And I had become interested in BCIs the year before. Um, So I wanted to start getting hands-on with the technology, but I was a student, so I didn't have much money. So I decided to buy this $30 Star Wars toy. I think it was called the Force Trainer. And me and two of my classmates uh, opened it up and we found that it has a neuroskyboard inside. And we managed to read the data coming out of that board and build this prototype for a wheel uh, that would rotate when the person wearing the BCI concentrated. And the whole point of that was trying to prove a concept for a wheelchair for paralyzed people. 
And then after that, I, you know, I posted it on LinkedIn and people like you and also OpenBCI reached out to me, which ended up in me being an engineer with them now. So I'm happy that I did the project. Nice. Yeah, it's it's a great story. And I think it's uh, it goes to show that people really want people who are passionate and, you know, are just building their own projects uh, almost just for fun. Um, so I think that's awesome. Uh, and Leo, uh, you're, you've been involved with OpenBCI for a little while now. Um, do you want to talk about how you came into it as well? Oh, sure. Um, first of all, thanks for having me, Luke. It's great to talking about these topics that just fascinating to everyone. Um, so I joined OpenBCI as a neural engineer intern uh, last summer and have been working on, so I joined when we are just turning out Gaia, and um, I worked on creating neural experiments, like uh, all the typical neural responses that you do to validate a new um, neural headset, like EEG headset, like a P300 or SSVEP. Um, we can get into more details, but so I created those neural experiments in a way that, okay, we say, okay, we can get good neural signals from Gaia. Um, and later I worked on creating um, demos in VR um, for Galia, including synesthesia room, where you can see your emotion and cognitive state being visualized in a VR immersive environment. Uh, and some, some of the more game-like ones like uh, VR, uh, the brain cat runner. Okay. And then there's Galia karting, where it's basically you, it's like the temple run games, um, but you control not by sliding on a phone screen, but by uh, smirking left and right of your face. Wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I think some of those applications, <clears throat> pardon me, that we've seen so far um, with the integration, uh, I think in my eyes, what seems to be maybe taking bci to this next level um because I, I think leo when we chatted earlier you mentioned a lot of hype around brain computer interfaces in the last kind of few years but in reality a lot of the time these applications are not useful or maybe uninteresting for for healthy patients do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Look, when I, I was just talking with uh, folks at OpenBSI before we came here on how I asked this question, <laughs> would you be willing to open up your brain, like drill a hole in your brain so that you can be free from keyboard and mouse fiber? Um, so my sample size was, was three and uh, all of them answered no to this question. Um, people said that I'm good with keyboards and mouse. So um, I'm so about myself. I'm also a research scientist at uh, Columbia University. So I'm also in this research field as well as involved in the industry. So what I see a lot nowadays with brain computer interface is, of course, there's a hype. So the hype is people say that you can read people's mind and um, uh, spell words with BCI, but all of those are. Uh, like contained with, I mean, this whole brain computer interface thing 
we measure their performance by this thing called uh, information transfer rate. And we are looking, really looking at um, the current spelling or other control modalities that brain computer interface enables. It's information transfer rate is so low comparing to a keyboard or mouse, like all those we call like muscle actuated or traditional interfaces. Um, so there's really no incentive as of right now for healthy individual to forego um, traditional interfaces and buttons in favor of a brick computer interface. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think maybe there is uh, an expectation that some people may have built up from sci-fi movies and that kind of thing of this place that BCIs can be at where you have this amazing autonomous control of things around you and other devices and mind reading and that kind of thing. But uh, as it turns out from what I've seen, and I'm sure you guys have found this as well, it's kind of not that simple. Uh, and it's it's actually, from what I've heard, quite difficult to get good brain readings a lot of the time. And, and there's a lot of kind of hurdles to that and a lot of hurdles to towards accuracy and that kind of thing. Um, Eva, you've been sort of working on these problems for for quite some time what would you say is kind of the hardest part about working with these technologies that's a that's a bit that's a good question actually i think there are several problems that we need to solve in order for people to start acquiring this technology um one of them obviously is what Leo was mentioning like the information transfer rate is very low. So if we want people to be wearing this and replacing things like keyboards and mouse, we need to be able to transmit way more information uh, and fine grain the data so that we can identify like specific thoughts or be way more concrete than we are right now. Another thing that I think is uh, like a big blocking item at the moment is how comfortable this equipment is. So a lot of BCIs tend to be bulky or sometimes the electrodes can become uncomfortable after you wear them for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think for regular people to start wearing this on a daily basis, the mechanical engineering part of the field needs to advance and make the devices way more sleek, lighter, um, something that you wouldn't really notice. Like, for example, how I'm wearing glasses right now. Mm. And I think another important factor is getting rid of motion artifacts. So with non-invasive BCIs, especially, um, if the user is moving, that can introduce motion artifacts into the signal. And it's hard to remove this and isolate what is the data versus what is, uh, what, what is the spikes being caused by that movement. So even though there's algorithms right now that can process the data, and the mechanical prototypes are getting better. I think it's still a problem that we need to work on in order to be able to get high quality data while people are going about their life, like maybe going uh, outside in the street and stuff like that. I just want to add on to that. When, they, when we first tried out Galia, we were saying, uh, okay, we know that in EEG, we have this thing called error-related potential, right? When you perceive that you make a mistake, uh, and we say, okay, um, can we play Beat Saber while wearing uh, Galia? And if you miss a cut, 
will we see this uh, error-related potential? Because of course you made a mistake, but uh oh no, because you has moved a crazy amount while playing Beat Saber and the SNR uh, signal to noise ratio on the EEG would just be so trashed that you can't get any good readings. Oh, interesting. So when the person was playing Beat Saber, they, because the movement was so big, is that why the signal was unintelligible? Is that correct? So in the, like, in the initial prototypes of the device, while we were still figuring out how to adjust it to the head properly, it was very difficult to tell the signal from the artifacts caused by the movement while the person is playing a VR game, and especially Beat Saber. I don't know if you've played, but it's a game where you're dancing around. Probably one of the worst ones to test as the first game. And so it was hard to do. And over time, we've improved both like the mechanical fit and the algorithms to be able to remove this. Mm. But I think it's something that uh, like a lot of companies are trying to do right now. And it, it's definitely something that we need to improve for people to be able to wear this in their daily life. Mm. I, I can imagine that making something generalizable for that would be really difficult. Because um, even if we solve the Beat Saber problem, let's call it, you know, you move to another type of game or another type of movement, and I would imagine that there's a whole other bunch of signals going on. This is my very limited neuroscience knowledge speaking now, but <laughs> yeah, I, I I can see that being a huge challenge. Um, <clears throat> and just to introduce Galia a little bit, like we have talked about it um, a little bit. Do you guys want to maybe give just a general overview of what is the intention behind Galia and, and what kind of technologies are you hoping to integrate and why? So um, in terms of, so Eva can of course tell a lot more on the hardware side of things. Um, I think I will focus on the software, what people are actually able to get from having this device. Um, but before that, I just want to coming back around that Ava mentioned like the comfort and the motion artifact. And this is really the two major factors when designing uh, EEG headset in the industry, because it's really a two spectrum, like a two axis. The more comfortable you get, of course, the fitting will be worse and you'll get worse contact. Um, on the other hand, if you sacrifice all the comforts, you really drill all those electrodes into the skull. Uh, <laughs> of course, it's going to be not very comfortable, but you have very good contact. So, uh, and this is a problem that we've always been trying to solve. Um, and in terms of Galia on the software side, uh, where the initial idea was to provide uh, three levels, three different levels of APIs one um, with each one being more abstracted. So what I mean by that is, so first we'll have this um, raw data API, which is mostly provided for people with um, good, understand, good understanding of the code of the, um, of the neuroscience. So they know how to play around with the raw data. They know how to pre-process, filter, and do cool stuff with it. Uh, so there's a raw data API, so minimally processed data directly from the um, analog to digital converter. 
And then we have the pre-processing API, um, which one of our team member who um, made BrainFlow um, has already provided API for that is the pre-processing API that has all the filtering uh, smoothing. You can get rid of say 60 Hertz noise if you're in North America. Um, so with that, um, as long as you have some basic signal processing skills, you can get good neural data. And the last level of the API is the one that we're going to provide to developers or interaction designers. It's the control API. Um, so the intention is one day you can, um, let's say you're in a game engine where you can do a function called get P price. I want to know if a space bar is getting price. Uh, and in the same manner, you can ask Galia, is the eye blinked or is the person paying attention to something? Um, so this is a control API. Um, and above from that, so we're talking about eye blinks and the, the change of attention. Those are instantaneous signals. Another thing that we also want to extract from Galia is the cognitive state. If the user is stressed or paying attention, it's high valence or low valence. And uh, that's our like, big vision for where this device will go. That's a great summary of the software. Um, and so in terms of the hardware, the Galia device right now, we are producing the beta devices. So our beta program is actually open for pre-orders. And the beta version of the Galia device will be based on the Varjo Aero headset. We are integrating our sensors onto the headset. And in total for EEG, it has eight active EEG channels located on the back of the head and along the midline, two passive EEG channels located on the forehead. Then there's four EMG channels on the face, and those are above and below the eyes. So with those, we're able to tell if someone is smiling or frowning. And then we have two EOG channels, one vertical located uh, like above and below the left eye and one horizontal EOG channel across the face. EOG is electroculography, so the electrical activity around the eyes. And on top of that, we have a heart rate sensor located on the forehead an EDA sensor on the forehead as well, which measures electrodermal activity. And that's the conductance of your skin, which will change when you sweat. Um, and the, the HMD also has integrated eye tracking, so image-based eye tracking. Yeah, I, right. I just want to add on a little bit more to that. So Eva mentioned uh, two passive EEG on the forehead and then all active EEGs and the for, um, for people who may be not so familiar with the concept. So active EEGs is the ones that has an amplifier as a source. So there's an electrical amplifier um, at where the electrode is placed. So that can really enhance uh, the signal that we collect um, before it actually get digitalized. Um, so having active electrodes across the scalp uh, really helps because people have hair. Um, but whereas on the forehead, people don't typically have hair there. Um, that's why we have passive electrodes here. And another note on the placement of the electrodes, we, so Eva mentioned that we have electrodes on the back on the occipital area and then across the midline. So the reason for that is 
Um, lots of EEG study, and especially the one involves vision. Um, Galia is with a VR headset, so we imagine lots of experiments or research or development will be visual based. Um, so the visual area is located in the occipital lobe. That's why we have a group of electrodes there. Um, and also we have electrodes across the midline of the scalp. Um, and this is because lots of the executive signals from the frontal lobe goes across the midline, like when you're making a decision uh, or you're reorienting your attention. So those will occur, those signals we typically say will be in the midline. So that justifies the placement of electrodes for God. Yeah, and another thing to add on to what Leo said is that our active electrodes, so the ones on the skull, we've designed them in-house and they're flexible. So they're very comfortable compared to traditional dry rigid electrodes, which we've used in the past for other headsets like the Ultra Cortex. Yeah, uh, it's it's really interesting to hear about the combination of different physiological markers. Um, and I suppose the more markers that you add on to that picture, the more accurate of a depiction of someone's state that you could get. Um, I, my first thought tends to go to medical applications for this. Uh, I can see that there would be a lot of good that could come from a technology like this. Um, what are some things that some of your customers have sort of planned to use this for in the future? I know with the the beta application um, that when I filled it out, there was a bunch of stuff asking, uh, you know, like what kind of projects you're going to be working on. Um, like, what do you think people are keen to use this for? Uh, at least at the moment? So we've had a wide range of applications from people in different domains, but like you mentioned, the medical field is a really big one. The gaming space is also a strong one, which is the one that we, you know, we started working in at first. And for example, in that space, it can be used both for control of games. So using EMG on the face, for example, like Leo was mentioning earlier with the game that we have similar to Temple Run. So using EMG to control a game so you don't need to use your controllers, but also for tracking and providing adaptive experiences where you can tell if the player is stressed about something or if they're enjoying the experience, what they're looking at, what they're paying attention to on the scene, and then maybe generate more of that content for that user or even having multiplayers and uh, extract some information that tells you whether these two people are enjoying playing this experience together or maybe they would be better match to someone else. So that within the gaming space are some examples. In the medical space, um, one, that, one application that I really like is, for example, for exposure therapy. So if someone is to be exposed to a situation in a controlled environment, the researcher would be able to have an insight on to how the person is feeling and track that over time to see how they're reacting to that experience. And I personally, I like that application because I feel like it's something that uh, lowers the risk for the person that is undergoing that experience. Um, and there's, I mean, 
it can be used for all sorts of research. People who may not be able to um, like interact with computers or other devices because they have, you know, like maybe they can't move their arms or they're paralyzed, and then this device can provide them with the opportunity to experience things that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And I'm sure you also have a lot of. Yeah, since Eva, you're mentioning all these great applications, um, I just want to uh, maybe draw an overview, sort of. Uh, so there are, when speaking of applications of a brain-computer interface, there are really uh, two types, or some people say there are three types. So there's the active interface, and then there's the passive interface. So when we talk about um, like spelling out a word or uh, like the temple run example, you are uh, foregoing your controllers, but using the facial expressions to control. So those are all the active BCIs. Those are when um, you use the BCI in replacement of some active control you have for the computer and the computer will provide feedback instantaneously um, to whatever control you input to the computer. And then there's also the passive BCI is, it's similar to when you rotate your phone, um, the image, so the whatever app that's open will also rotate, right? Whether to portrait or to landscape. So that's called contextual, uh, contextual interface. It knows what's happening in the environment and uh, make the interface change accordingly. So um, a brain computer interface can also be used to power and contextual interface in a way that the context that the brain, a BCI knows is your cognitive state. Um, one application that uh, has that was published a while back is um, is when you are wearing a AR headset, you see a whole bunch of floating windows, right? You're opening maybe your email, your your calendar. Um, and you're just working away on these applications. And then suddenly the system detects your attention shifted. You're not working on those apps anymore. You are maybe uh, you went to grab a coffee or went to grab a tea or someone knocked on the door. So your attention are reoriented to a different task. Um, so being able to detect this, but say you're having all these floating windows in your field of view wearing an AR glass, this is very destructive. So this system is able to detect your shifts of attention and just automatically minimize or hide those windows when your attention goes away from interacting with the class. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's really this two rod of applications that BCI are going nowadays. Um, but we're seeing more examples of non-invasive BCIs like Galia going to the passive rod providing a context for for computer interface to be more uh, more efficiently interact with the user. Whereas the invasive ones, uh, the ones like place the electrical pads in your brain, those ones can provide a very fine grain information of your neural activity. Uh, and people have been using that to those to actuate like, prosthetic arms or uh, doing spellers like that. Yeah, just for context, like an invasive BCI, the one that uh, like Neuralink published that they're working on, for example, will have like upwards of a thousand channels, whereas uh, like a non-invasive one or 
the ones that we do at OpenBCI have up to 16 at the moment, probably more in the future, because it's hard to fit it all on the surface of the head. So like Leo was saying, the non-invasive one will give you much more fine-grained data, which you can use to accurately control. But with a non-invasive one, it only from EEG data, it's very hard to produce signals that would help you to control something. With EMG, it's easier. And that's why with Galia, we added both EMG and EEG. So we can have the option to apply to both types of control. Yeah, I just want to add on to that. The uh, non-invasive route of BCI is going more to the sensor fusion route. So when you are like just having EEG, well, you you learn basically nothing. <laughs> so in the yeah. past, in the in the research field, uh, when the EEG was first invented, um, in the 1950s or so. Um, people are studying, people are having these experiments where they just show like flash images in front of a participant and see their uh, electrical activities on their brain. Um, but now we're turning more those non-invasive ways. Now we have eye tracking and all these technologies. So uh, one application like that my research is specifically concerned with um, is we use the eye tracking to know and computer vision to know uh, what thing or what object are you are looking at at the moment in the in the environment, and then we use the EEG signal and sync it with the eye tracking signal. So whenever you make a fixation, whether to your the computer screen or your phone. Um, we are gonna at the same time look at the EEG signal to see if there's a decision-making signal uh, rise up in your in your head. And if there is, that means you're you're actively shifting your attention to to the thing that you are looking at. And maybe um, you're walking down the park. Um, you are wearing this AR glass that has also has this EEG sensors. Um, and you saw, say, uh, the cherry blooming very well. Um, and normally, maybe you will flip out your phone, take a picture, post on social media, you do all these interactions with, with your phone. But now having this interface, okay, the system first detects, okay, your gaze shifted to the cherry tree. Uh, and then from EEG, it knows your attention shifted. Um, and what you're looking at, what you have shifted to, of course, the thing you are looking at, it's the cherry tree. And it also detects you were you weren't in a focused state. You weren't like a reading or listening to audio book. You are just daydreaming. Uh, so it thinks, so based on all those contextual information that it learns from you, it can um, it can inform the system of possible actions that you might want to take. And one of them would be snap a picture and post on social media. Um, so, and now there will be a button like appearing on the side of your field of view from the AR class and you can just press that button to perform that action. And all of this will happen within 500 milliseconds of your signature tree. Mm -hmm. So that's a cool application. That's, that's, that's kind of mind blowing. Um, I, we, we did talk about this a little bit when I, I talked to you earlier, Leo, but yeah, just hearing that, like, <clears throat> I think that's it has a lot of potential um, in positive and negative directions, I, I think. Uh, the first kind of thing that I think about with attention reorientation is kind of, I think you could market this idea of 
training yourself to be more focused on the things that you want to focus on. So I think that there's a lot of kind of dismay and a, a lot of people that are sort of feeling like they're not focused. Um, you know, I think a lot of people say that ADHD and things like that are on the rise um, and whether or not that that's true from, you know, a diagnostic point of view, I think just the symptoms of that uh, people are certainly complaining about a lot more these days, like constantly being just distracted throughout the day by their phones and being unable to sort of get into a focused flow state with their work or spending time with people or whatever activity that they're wanting to be focusing on. So I could see um, potential applications of this kind of technology. You know, you, you set a goal, for example, oh, I want to be focused on work and then it detects when you know you're looking slightly to the side of what you're supposed to be working on where your phone is uh and then it sort of immediately sort of you know gives you that pavlovian response of like oh you know you're you're looking at this thing now um and and you know i think that in combination with leveraging your existing you know neuroplasticity uh would be really great at kind of retraining people to um, to focus on the things that they want to do. Actually, what you're describing reminds me of one of our current VR experiences, which Leo designed and built, which is called Synesthesia Room. And it's this virtual room. You can talk more on it, but as a quick summary, it's, a, it's basically a virtual room where you walk in and you see this glowing sphere that changes colors. And each color is mapped to a different frequency produced by your brain waves. So different frequency bands are associated with different states. For example, the alpha band, which is 8 to 13 hertz, um, is associated with relaxation and it usually peaks when you relax and close your eyes. The beta band is more associated with being concentrated or active. Uh, so we use this room as a way to provide neurofeedback. When you're in that room, you can see the color changing and also the music tones are mapped to the frequency band as well. So you can get an idea of which frequencies are peaking in your brain and what which state you're in by looking at the colors and in that way train your brain to like relax more or concentrate more. Exactly, so that's a great example, Eva, thanks. Um, so the same is, um, so when, when speaking of those neural feedback paradigms, um, it can really be, I, I like to put things into categories, but uh, it can be divided into proactive and reactive ones. So proactive ones is where you, where you take active actions based on the feedbacks that you get. Um, so for example, uh, you are in this um, VR demo that Eva just talked about, you see the color turning red and purple, um, and we mapped the signal associated with stress with red and purple, um, and now you know, okay, I'm stressed, I should try to calm down and relax. Um, so this is when you take active like measures to your cognitive state based on the neural things that the system is is able to decipher and then there's a reactive ones i mean if we were uh 50 years earlier you would do experiments where you would shock people right uh, that was 
terrible idea, but this is what people used to do. So uh, when your attention, so they will give this shock therapy to people, right? They, whenever their attention shifts to something that they shouldn't pay attention to, you give them a shock. Uh, and uh, then do, the neuroplasticity will kick in. Okay, I shouldn't, I shouldn't doze off. Um, so the more as we're coming nowadays, uh, when talking about like shifting of attentions, can can that help you to focus more on things that you should focus on? Um, of course, the person, the person themselves should have the diligence of to actually um, be willing to use this information to help guide them to live a more efficient and uh, happier life. So what an attention business can help you achieve that is by creating this thing called a cognitive timeline of your uh, daily attention map. So it can show you, so say you're wearing this um, AR headset that has a camera and has some EEG electrodes and you're just going through your day um, and, by the end, and at the end of the day, it can show you uh, some chart or plot of all the things that you've been paying attention to throughout the day. Uh, for example, a probably not appropriate example is, is so that uh, you're looking at you, like, lots of times throughout the day, you're walking down the street, you look at cars. Like, whenever a fancy car pass, you, you look at it. Um, and then maybe some advertisement company can take that information and to show your car ads when you get back home. Right. Uh, so that's, of course, is not ethical. Um, so we're really coming into the question, we'll have a cybernetic camera that can not only know what you're looking at, but can also know if you're paying attention to um, what you're looking at with that heard the general ethic of, of our work. Yeah, and potentially with more biometrics, it, it could also know, like, it did your heart rate increase? Did you get nervous? What impact is it having on you? So this is all like uncharted territory. Yeah, for sure. I think that's probably one of the challenges of working at a company like yours is that, you know, you guys provide the the technology, the hardware, the software, but it's really up to people what they do with it, right? Um, and yeah, I think that that kind of leads me to think about general perceptions of BCI going forward. I, I think that there's this interesting disconnect with people that I've spoken to who are not really in the field uh, where they have this immediate fearful reaction of anything to do with brain computer interfaces um even if the actual applications are fairly benign um but i think that also people don't really know about some of the research that's being done and some of the crazy mind-blowing stuff that we're already starting to see um because i think that's mostly just exists in academia right now uh, and, you know, general applications of that haven't really been popularized uh, for one reason or another. But, yeah, do you think that the fears that the general public maybe has about these technologies are accurate? Personally, um, I don't think they're very realistic because, like, 
for example, last year, I think it was uh, 2021, that we ran a survey at OpenBCI to find out would people be willing to wear Gallia? Like, what are they scared of? And I think it was like 600 plus people based in the US. And we asked them a bunch of questions. And so, some of the questions were, would you be open to using a device that is recording your brain waves? Um, and also, would you be concerned? And what are the major concerns? And most of the people were open to using them, but they were also concerned. And we found out that the top, I think three things that they were worried about was like um, selling their data, which I think is a realistic concern considering you know what's going on with data in the world. I, but another one was mind control. And for that one, for example, I think like if the technology was at the point where we could control someone's minds, I would be rich. Like, I don't think it's technologically realistic at the moment in the current state of the technology to be worried about something like that. But I can see with all the futuristic movies uh, that are coming out, how, you know, a, a person would get scared of that. Maybe if we're looking at many, many years down the line, you know, like who knows what the technology will be able to do. But in this survey, we were asking them about like today, what are you scared of today? So I think some of those things are blown out of proportion by the movies. And um, I think by, you know, breaking down BCIs in talks like this, like what Leo was explaining, people will get a more realistic idea of what we can and we can't do. And really that like non-invasive EEG is not that helpful anyways. So, so that's my personal take on it. But um, I think concerns like, for example, people selling their data or whether the data is being securely stored are realistic and they are things that we take very seriously. So for example, with our current products, if you buy an OpenBCI headset on the store, um, we never have access to your data. It only gets stored locally on your computer. So one of the reasons why I like working for OpenBCI is because we've always been very open in that aspect. And we make sure that customers understand what's happening to their data and where it's going. So I'm, you know, I, I like working for a company that is gonna keep that sort of mentality and do it the right way. Yeah, there's uh, this evolving field called neuroethics. Uh, I've been to several seminars on, on this on this front, and uh, most of people are talking. Well, they're first of all, they're not from not all of them are from the neuroscience background. But the point is valid when they talk about that the ethics should go in front of science. Like the ethics should guide how science advance, uh, or we'll have the situation like we did with nuclear power, um, like ma massively destructive force. Um, and same thing with uh, neurotechnology. I mean, if neurotechnology, I mean, as we're improving our understanding of uh, human or other animals' brain, there are more things we can do every day. Like one day, maybe. Uh, without you knowing you are wearing like we know that one day ar devices uh or glasses is going to take over uh, phones uh it's going to be the next major computing platform so let's say one day you're wearing uh this ar glasses and without you knowing it's tracking your eye it also got those frontal cameras i mean it must have it it's a necessary part for the technology to work but um it just 
knows what what you're looking at like you're going through everyday life um and maybe it also has a hidden eeg sensor on the on the side of the, the glass arms um so those are really valid concerns because they really can extract lots of information from you and i really think as a company um or as with any commercial company should um and especially the ones that concerns with neurotechnology because now we're typing directly into the central processing unit of humans um we should like we should it should be our responsibility to educate the general public of what a BSA can and cannot do i think that's that's very important yeah i agree with that um yeah i think it's important to inform people also it it's important to find out what what worries them because you know the, maybe the things that we think are concerning might not be what the general public is thinking about so i think just having them take part in conversations or doing q and a's where you can hear their opinion on the topic is a good way to to like take into account the concerns and be able to address them when you're building the technology absolutely i can imagine that it would be the best source of data really to, to yeah see what people are actually worried about and then in some way maybe have that influence the engineering process um and i guess to take that idea of the future of bcis to its next level is uh this kind of thing that i think about a lot which is like a whole brain simulation or connectomes um so kind of getting a exact one-for-one -one picture of a brain uh now i know that this has been done somewhat successfully in uh fruit flies i believe uh, and worms um and i i did talk about that a little bit on a previous podcast um but i i i really find this this topic fascinating uh and i, I would love to get your guys opinion on whether or not you think this would ever be possible for a human brain we were just talking about this earlier. I think Leo, you have a lot to say on this. So uh, it's hype, right? <laughs> we're talking about simulating the how uh, we have all these powerful the trillions of transistor GPUs. Uh, we're talking, okay, maybe we're at a point we can actually simulate the human brains. Um, answer is um, not so simple. Well. Um, there was a very nice article published a few years ago of uh, titled, uh, I think it was, Can a Neuroscientist Understand a Microchip? Um, so, what, what that, so what that article tells about, reveals is actually a very interesting fact of how we neuroscientists do things. Um, so the brain we know is, the, of course, we like to use the analogy of computers, it's a central process. It's just think of it as a big microchip. But now, um, what we're essentially doing, like with the non-invasive method, and even with the invasive method, is we're taking those huge probes, uh, like you would use maybe on an oscilloscope. I mean, those are still huge, those electrical probes, comparing to the size of a transistor. So you're taking these huge probes to probe different part of the, of the, of the microchip. Um, so maybe you're okay. Let's say this microchip is connected with uh, with a with a display. You show something. Sorry, 
is connected with a camera and the camera is pointing at the display. Okay. And now you show flash some images on the display. And now we know that the optical signal will get through the camera and eventually to the microchip. And the microchip is gonna do whatever it does. It has been programmed. Um, and now we're what essentially are doing, we're taking these huge probes, putting it all across the microchip to see which part flashes when we show those images. So you see, this is a very crude way of finding correlations between external stimuli and what's happening in the, in the central processing unit. Um, so we are far from the point where we can build like one-to-one -one, like neuron-to-transistor relationship. Uh, and this field is called uh, computational neuroscience. It's a very fascinating field. It's about building mathematic models of, um, of single neurons. Um, there's a lot of math and science and uh, physics to it. Uh, I won't get into the details, but um, this has been done in model organisms like roundworm, like uh, Lucas just mentioned, and now uh, fruit flies. Um, so what people have been trying, have been able to do is to um, find all the neurons uh, in those model organisms and find their connections, especially I know more in the case of fruit fly, uh, fruit fly has a huge eyes, right? So, and all those eyes are sensors, those are neurons, and those also have connections. Um, and fruit fly also have huge nodes, like olfactory system. So um, the fruit fly project that was actually happening in Columbia, there's a lab called Fruit Fly Observatory by Professor Aron Lazar. Um, so he built this, um, you can think of it as, a, as a electrical schematic of a fruit fly brain, where you have uh, transistors representing the, um, the neuron in the eye and the ones in the, in the nose or the ones in the brain. And by also by mapping out all the connection, you can effectively simulate a fruit fly on a computer. And there's a field called neuromorphology is to take this knowledge that we gain, like uh, mapping out the entire brain and print this on circuit board. Uh, and to know if like, um, I know from your previous podcast, Luke, you, you mentioned something of how you download a warm spring to a, to a robot and moves like warm. So that's exactly the thing happening is, um, is when you have all these connections and they are just, uh, it's a self-sustained system that simulate a real living organism. But moving to humans, it's we're far from the point where we can, I mean, just as a simple comparison, there are about 7,000 neurons in a roundworm. And comparing that with uh, the billions and trillions of neurons in human brain and besides, um, you can, there are things that you can do to a roundworm that you cannot do to a human. <laughs> so yeah, we are, we're far from building connectors for humans, but still the computational neuroscience field is, is a fascinating mathematically speaking field in, um, because neuron works. So we like to make the parallel of how computer operates to how neuron operates. But in fact, they operate actually in very different ways. Um, so maybe just to go into a little bit, bit more detail on that is, 
So computers, as we normally know, is what we call amplitude modulated machines or amplitude encoding machines is when we know that um, computer operates by having different voltage levels, right? We have like including the BCI, the EEG is having the analog to digital converter measure different voltages on your scope. Um, so inside the computer, you have different voltage levels and that they are um, digitalized to different, different levels and eventually coded into zero and ones. Um, so it's amplitude modulated. We have a computer sampled at fixed intervals. Uh, we know like a sensor can have sampling rate. So every a few milliseconds, it takes a sample. And, uh, and each sample have a different amplitude. Uh, comparing that with uh, how a neuron operates, neurons is what we call a time encoding machine. It doesn't encode information by amplitude. So like a computer, we know like how your, uh, like for example, the computer screen, we have different pixels like uh, zero to 250 that represent different color. So zero to 250, that's amplitude. Uh, whereas, so it encodes information in the in the how large, how big is the value of the signal. Whereas a neuron, we know that neuron fires. Neuron will have these spike signals, uh, but neuron fires all at the same amplitude. It doesn't encode information by uh, by the value of its of its firing. It encodes ampli It encodes information by time, by the duration between each firing. So the duration between each frame, that's actually where the information gets encoded. So that's just some fascinating aspect of how you can build machines that doesn't modulate in values at all, but just by separating out when you fire, like when you have a spike, you can, in the same way that you can re record, you can represent an image in your computer, the neurons can do the same thing, albeit in a different space. So I suppose there's a distinction between, you know, whole brain emulation and, and very, very accurate representations and these sort of lesser representations. But in my eyes, it seems like a lot of the things that are useful and maybe specifically useful for the well-being of people don't necessarily need that much detail right now. Would you say that that's correct? I personally think that it depends on the application. So depending on what you want to use the BCI for, you need more or less data. Like for example, earlier when we were talking about uh, using them for active control, then you would need to know way more, uh, to have way more channels and more information in order to be able to differentiate way many different states because we want to do a more complex action like for example moving a prosthetic which is going to require having access to the individual fingers and the grip strength and like the intent of moving when you're moving like how fast you want to move the arm etc but if you're doing other applications like for example uh passively tracking whether someone is starting to feel sleepy when they're driving you would need way less fine grain and it wouldn't be uh, technologically optimal 
or like um, you, you wouldn't be optimizing the device if you're collecting all this data that you don't need. So you would waste a lot of processing power. And I think it depends on the application. Eventually, I think we should aim to know as much as we can about the brain because that will give us the option to build things that are more and more complex and even, um, hopefully get to the point where we build this like operating system of the mind, which is our long-term goal with Galia. But for right now, to be able to use DCIs for uh, applications that make sense today and to help individuals that may have lost some of their functions, we don't need to wait until the point where we have all the information in order to start using these products to make an impact and improve people's lives great awesome well that's uh that's about all the the questions that i've got uh but is there anything else that you guys would like to mention or anything uh, you're particularly excited about that you've got coming up or anything you want to talk about with open bci um well i do want to mention something but it's tomorrow so i don't know if you will be able to release this podcast before then we do have a webinar coming up tomorrow and i think we will be doing more in the future so we want to show people that galia is not just an idea it's actually a product that exists and we use it in the office every day we've built more than 20 alpha devices and they work so we're gonna be running a series of webinars and talks where we walk people through how to use it, what the software looks like, what the signals look like. And the first one of those is tomorrow, but I think we'll probably be doing more in the future. So if anyone is interested in seeing it in action and learning more about it, you should just like check out when we post about it. And I'm really excited about it. I think um, it's crazy to me that I work with these devices. Like I remember when I was doing my master's and trying to build this cardboard wheel, I felt like this was very futuristic. And I felt like, well, this is crazy. Like how am I controlling this with my brain? And now I get to work with this device every day. And I see like my heart in real time and I see my frequencies change and I'm able to learn how to relax better. And it still blows my mind that, you know, I can do this on a daily basis. So I'm excited for what's to come in the next few years as we integrate, you know, more signals into it and make the software experience better. Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. Everyone will mention that we are going to have this webinar. I think it's just all the all for the best when we having this conversation like between the developers of this technology uh, and people who may be interested in either to learn more or just to use this technology to develop with them. Um, me, myself, I come from a computer science and electrical engineering background. Uh, and I have always, I always wanted to do brain computer interface uh, and uh, maybe some way merge that with mixed reality. Uh, so when I first come to Columbia and uh, come to the brain computer interface field, uh, I was actually being set back by, by, by all the jargons that I find in this field, like uh, occipital lobe, or parietal lobe, what, what is that? So, uh, so I've really find myself, it's, it's, I, I find a huge resistance trying to dive deep into the field. I mean, I, I can understand why people will have some misunderstanding and even maybe sometimes fear of this technology. 
is when it's it's really there's lots of abuse of terminology uh for people in this field uh one is maybe you you something that will just get hyped when you don't fully understand it um i think it's very important for people in the industry and also in the research field to be more transparent about the technology like explain if you are explaining this stuff to to the general public explain them in a way that everybody can join the conversation um so i think it's all the more important now we're designing this technology it's it's coming nearer and nearer into our actual reality, like being maybe uh, publicly available, like everybody can wear a brain-computer interface. It's very important for everybody to be able to understand what exactly they are getting from having these devices um, and how their life can be improved. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I actually resonate with what you were saying. Like I also come from a engineering background. I did electronic engineering and then I did electrical and computer engineering and I never studied, you never took neurology courses during my bachelor's or my master's. It was always during my like one internship that I did where I did some research and then just like by myself doing courses and I did have also the experience of thinking, oh my god, there's so so much knowledge about the brain that I don't know all these terms, like how, how am I gonna be able to get into the BCI field? And I think for other engineers out there that are starting to learn about this tech and that wanna get involved, just don't feel like because you don't know, because you didn't take you know neurology courses and you don't have that knowledge that you can't do it. Because I, I think a lot of companies hire engineering talent and then you can uh, take some courses and learn as you go about the science behind it and obviously it's you're not going to know as much as a scientist like Leo knows way more about the science than me but it gives you enough knowledge to uh, to be able to do the work and then you know keep building on it great well I think you guys have an amazing mission and the stuff you're working on, um, I think, is going to break down some serious barriers. Um, so I, I'm keen to be part of that conversation as well. And hopefully people can learn a little bit about it. And uh, if they're interested, I'll let them know where they can find you. But uh, thank you so much, Eva and Leo. Uh, this has been a really, really great chat. And um, hopefully have you on again at some point in the future. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to that episode of my podcast. Um, I hope you found it fascinating. I certainly did. It's nice to branch out to an international audience with some international guests. It's really exciting for me. So I appreciate the support of you guys listening. And you can check out OpenBCI at openbci.com and there's more information about Dahlia and their other products and different projects that they work on so again thank you very much and I'll catch you next time